to the Prairie Pod. I am so excited, Mike. Are you excited? I can't tell. Are you seriously? I mean, you seem so calm and quiet <laughs> and introverted. Oh. Yeah, I am too. Because my mentor and successor, predecessor, my predecessor, <laughs> I get those two confused. You practice that. <laughs> <laughs> She's on the show. I know. We got... And her colleague. Well... Yes. I mean, yeah, not yeah. only are we talking about bees today, which is very, very exciting, but we're also bringing back a throwback to season two and one. Yeah, <laughs> JP's with us, yeah. and then we have our partner in crime, Nicole, mm. too. Yeah. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? One at a time, please. I am Nicole Gurgitz, and I am the Minnesota Biological Survey, uh, the Bee Survey Specialist. I'm Jessica Peterson, the invertebrate ecologist for the Minnesota Biological Survey. Back, throwback. I don't know. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Nicole's really the star of the show, though. She's got all the answers to all the questions you might have today about bees. And if I don't have the answer, Jessica will then have right, the answer. We expect you to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just excited to have it. It's like a mini prairie pod reunion. It's just nice. It is very I'm, I'm very excited about it. Okay, so before we even start jumping in to talk about bees um, and all the incredible things that they're doing because they're always busy out there. Busy as a bee, one might say. Okay, okay. I know. I did it. I Please. did it. I did it. <laughs> Before we even start, I'm, this is a little game we're going to play with the listeners because I read about this in a journal article and I think it's actually a really good exercise to kind of frame the whole conversation today. Jess is looking confused, but it's all going to come together, I promise. I'm confused. <laughs> okay, so listeners, we want you to conjure up the image of a bee in your mind. Okay, so think about it. What does it look close like? Eyes, maybe. Yeah, close your eyes. You can draw it, too, if that's easier. Hmm. We'll give you a little bit of time to draw it. What does it look like? Mike's drawing his here right now. Okay, I'm just stalling to give you time to think about it. Think about all the parts and pieces of that bee, what it looks like. Does it have stripes? Does it have a stinger? Is it smiling? This is a pretty good picture that Mike's drawing. So the reason why I wanted you to start with this is because overwhelmingly, the study found that when we think about bees, most people are drawing a fat-bodied, single-bodied, like just one circle with another circle for a head, all stripes, Usually it's smiling. Sometimes it has wings, <laughs> which is interesting because bees definitely have wings. Uh, sometimes not. Sometimes it has little legs. Sometimes not. In Mike's picture, very good, Mike. He drew not only the head. Thank you, Miss Bennett. He's yeah. got the abdomen. He's got the thorax on here. He yeah. has antenna. What is this? Oh, is that his That's his tongue. Okay. Yes, yes. Or, or her. Yeah, her. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Mike's bee also... What's this? There's pollen on the on the leg. Oh, oh. on the leg. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I, well, and bonus points if you guys put pollen on the leg of the bee. Yeah. So most of the time, and even if you look at your emojis on your phone, it's just kind of this cartoony, fat-bodied bee. And so Jess and Nicole are going to help us understand all of the different, different different, different, different kinds of bees that we have and that they certainly don't all have stripes. They come in many different shapes and sizes. And I guarantee you they're not all smiling. Only the ones that are hanging out with Jess and Nicole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure those ones aren't smiling either. All right. That was a little game that we wanted to play just to see. That was fun. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I really like your bee. I was a little confused because this looked the pollen looked a little bit like the bee had a backpack. <laughs> so it had a tiny rucksack. Oh. It was scary. Which I guess in a way, depending on the species, maybe. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. How does one become an invertebrate ecologist or a bee survey specialist? Jess, you first. Well... You go to school for a real, real long time, <laughs> and you learn all kinds of things. So, um, you know, most of my work has been in um, very disparate uh, areas of the entomological world, 
from taxonomy and molecular phylogenetics to community ecology, landscape ecology to agricultural production. So, you know, I know a little bit about a lot of things, uh, which comes in handy sometimes when, you know, you need somebody that knows a little bit about a lot of things. There's so many insects that not every, most people can't know about all of them, right? You know, I I couldn't even necessarily hazard a guess of how many insect species we have in Minnesota, let alone the world. Um, so most of the, ra- most of the ranges I've seen are like, uh, ten different ten orders of magnitude from the smallest to the largest estimate. Yeah. And right. did you say one time, Jess, that we only even know like only one percent of the insect species are described that we only know about, or is it five percent? What it's hard to know. It's hard to even estimate that, right? Like, how would we even necessarily know how what we don't know? There's knowns, <laughs> no knowns, and how do we no know what we don't know? But yeah. definitely, we only know about a percentage of them. We know. Well, I don't know. I don't know what percentage it is. It's it's a fraction. I mean, I I would say you know the diversity of insects in Minnesota is somewhere between ten and thirty thousand, maybe. We know we're starting to know how many bees we have here in Minnesota, um, and that's just through a lot of work. It's it's a lot of work to go out there and find all these bees. Hey, Megan and Jess here. Quick fact check update on the percentage of insects that are known and not known. Take it away, Jess. Yeah, I had to look this up because I couldn't let it go. So um, it's estimated that we know about 20% of the total diversity of insects. So we got about 80% more to go. It's quite a bit. Is that across the globe? Across the globe, right? So it would probably vary by geography. You know, those places of the world we don't get to probably have more undescribed diversity. But, and the groups that we don't get to. That was what this annual review paper that I read uh, talked about. But there's still so much to find. And we're going to put that on the website, too. Okay, cool. High five. (laughs) High five. Fact check update out. So. That's a that's a really long story to say how I became <laughs> this person that I am. Well, it should be a long story, right? <laughs> like it just, well, yeah. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen overnight. I hope it's a long story that continues. Are you <laughs> like, saying that I'm old? No, I'm saying? saying that I want you to get a lot older than you are now so you'll be Thank around you. for a long time. That's, that's what I'm saying. We're all works in progress. How about you, Nicole? So I was always interested in insects, so I decided to go to school for conservation biology, and I got a student position job at the bee lab, so I started doing bee work, and that basically started the whole head dive right into all the bee world, and I've learned a lot about the bees the last several years, so... And that's what brought me here. You said B-Lab, is that University of Minnesota B-Lab? Yes, B-Lab at the University of Minnesota is where I started my bee career. Cool. Nice. Very cool. And they do lots of really good work. Yeah. Yeah. Lead us off here, Mike. Let's let's talk about insects, um, a big picture view, some more. Jess has talked a little bit about it. But there's been some recent media and, and, and news, even major national level news discussion about insects and their and the insect apocalypse. And I'd, I'd like to hear you guys comment on that and, and tell us more about what's happening to insects uh, within Minnesota and, and even broader. Well, it's one of my favorite topics, talking about the insect apocalypse. Because it allows me to say the things I've already said in part that we there's just so much we don't know. So we don't have a grasp on insect populations in Minnesota. I even cringe kind of using that word because there's very few, the word population that is, there's very few insects that we can get a handle on their population. Um, there's just so many and so few entomologists. So um 
you know, we might have a good handle on some populations of pests, but um, as far as native bees or um, things that like that that we might care about, um, things that are of conservation concern, we don't have a good handle on their population, let alone their distribution, their natural history, um, etc. So, um, really, the first step is to do what we're doing, which is to do a survey of the of the critters uh, that are out there, and and so that's what we're up to, hoping to chip away at at some of those questions of what are the trends of bees in Minnesota. We we won't get there with this first survey project, but we can hope to begin that with some of the other work that we're doing um, in the prairie region, looking at monitoring of bees. So we're not there yet. We don't know. We don't know. We don't have the answer to that question as far as trends, but we're getting there. There you go. And we do, we talk about this a little bit. I can't remember all the seasons run together now. It might have been last season where Jess and I brought up um, these news articles again. And they are really good overviews of what we do know. I feel like they have cited a lot of scientific literature. Uh, they're working with entomologists all across the globe. They have case studies where they have some sites that were in the rainforest that they've gone back then and visited many years later and they're comparing their plots that they had initially with these later plots and so we do know some things um but we certainly there's so much like jess said that we don't know so i encourage people to read that one the insect apocalypse is here it's actually an easy read for being an article that cites a lot of hard science like i feel like it's fairly it's not i'm what is it, like five pages or something? It's not that long. I, don't think, I, I didn't mention the specific articles. Um, oh, sorry. I did, and we'll put them back up on our website, too. Okay. But the other one is Plummeting Insect Numbers Threaten Collapse of Nature by The Guardian. And kind of both of these articles, while they have very, um, what do I want to say, eye-catching titles, they actually mm -hmm. have good content within them, and it's debatable whether or not uh, we should go to that apocalyptic state. There's definitely things to be concerned about, but I don't know, like Jess said, if we can say we're in an apocalypse. Okay, so you already answered our next question. What's the overall trend? We don't really know. So explain a little bit, Nicole, the basics of native bee identification and a little bit about their biology. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it is difficult to be able to tell what the what a bee is versus a fly or a wasp or I mean you look at a flower there are tons of insects on that flower so to pick out that one bee when sometimes it's very very tiny um, can be difficult so the first thing you would look for would be um, it would have two pairs of wings so all bees have four wings total Hang on, let me look at Mike's picture. I'm just looking yeah. at my drawing. Okay, wings. so Mike's bee has no wings. No, <laughs> no wings. Was, no. Maybe, he ran out of time. He ran out of time. It only had one wing. I just drew two on it, okay? Oh, the other so thing is that I think Mike did get correct in his picture, though, is that most bees, almost all bees, have a pollen collecting hair. So they should have some, some hairiness to them. Could be on their leg. Could be on their belly, uh, but they are generally more hairy, unlike wasps that don't have hair. So those two key things kind of help you pick out the bees that, that are on that flower. And um, so adult bees emerge sometime in the spring or summer, depending on the species. And the female, well, I guess I should start with like, uh, 90, uh, about 90% yeah, of our bees are basically solitary bees, so they live on their own. It's just the female constructing a nest and collecting pollen, which she's collecting the pollen to put it in a little pollen ball to feed her little egg that she puts in her little cell, and then um, she just continues that, and that's what makes her nest. So it's just a bunch of little pollen balls with a little egg on it, and then she um yeah just lays all the eggs and then eventually the adults will die during the summer or the winter during the first hard freeze i guess but those little eggs that's what um they the larvae sit in underground typically so about uh 70 percent of our 
bees nest in the ground and the rest are stem nesters. So you can find some bees creating nests in stems and it would be the same concept. They put a little pollen ball with their little egg and they make a little cell for it. And that's, those are the bees, those are the larvae that overwinter and then those emerge in the spring or summer. And then the whole cycle kind of starts again. There's some variations depending on what species we're talking about, but generally um, that's how it goes. I guess bumblebees would be one that are kind of a, since they're a solitary bee, or a, um, they are a social bee. They, the queen does overwinter. So uh, it overwinters, she overwinters as an adult. And then um, in the spring, she emerges and finds a place to make her nest. So that's the only bee that kind of has a different, uh, that overwinters as an adult. Yes, that goes into hibernation. Jess, I, I think we've, this is something we've covered, you guys have cover, covered in other episodes, uh, but uh, honeybees versus our native bees is something that needs to probably to be clarified for some of our listeners. Can you talk about the differences between the two? Yeah, um, so as Nicole was alluding to, most bees are solitary. The bumblebees and the honeybees are the exception. Some of those solitary bees can be kind of gregarious where they, they aggregate their nests together. But um, honeybees are um, social bees, so they, they, they build a nest. They have a queen with workers. All those workers are females. Um, they do produce males at some point um, during the season as well. Um, you know, but honeybees are not native, um, which is usually the picture that people conjure in their mind, uh, that or a, or a bumblebee, when they think of bees. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that that um, they don't realize that honeybees are not native, but they also don't realize that there's bees other than honeybees, which are all the other 450 species here in Minnesota. So, um, yep, they're introduced. They, there are some that live feral. Um, there's varying reports about how many uh, feral colonies, so that would be like in a tree stump or something. Um, Hard to say after some of the the nosema and such came through uh, and and varroa mites, what, how many feral colonies there are. But most people things, are keeping. What were those things you just said, Jess? Mm-hmm. What were those things you just said? Nosema and awesome. varroa mites, so a virus and the nose and the um, mites that that harm the bees have thought to have been taken out some of those um, those feral colonies. A lot of beekeepers treat their colonies. If you have a, you know, a hive in your backyard, they treat them for those kinds of things so that they aren't harmed by them. But a feral colony wouldn't be treated. So it's thought that a lot of those feral colonies were have declined, but it's hard to know. It's hard to know how many feral colonies are out there. Gotcha. Thank you. So I'm going to throw this one at you, too, because I hear you say this a lot, and I just want clarification on it. Are bees really the most important pollinator? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you both just go, mm-hmm. Is that a leading question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a leading question. Okay, why? Explain why. Well, like I mentioned before about those pollen-collecting hairs, well, they have these special tools that they have come up with to collect this pollen that is so important for them to be able to collect mass amounts of because they have lots of little eggs that they're feeding too. So they have a way to collect a lot of pollen, which a lot of other insects, if it's on a flower, it may collect pollen, but it's kind of mostly by accident. It just happens to stick to it. But the, the pollen collecting hair is what bees have uh, that make them such important pollinators. And they're actually collecting and then using that yes, pollen. Yes, and they are actively going out there and they are collecting that pollen to bring back to the nest and they're going back and forth, back and forth and collecting that pollen just for their little eggs. Which means that when they're going to each flower, they're actually, you say it with me, Mike, pollinating. Oh gosh, you were behind. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> non-game fail. <laughs> actually pollinating because they also do something called flower constancy which is where they're 
going from the same species, like individuals of the same species, the same species, the same species, which means they're not really wasting pollen either. Whereas some of our other pollinators, they may fly to a blazing star and then they'll fly to a goldenrod. And so they're kind of wasting whatever pollen they picked up because they're not actually pollinating cross species. Mm-hmm. So I know, I like it. Jess, you, you started, I think you mentioned uh, our Minnesota bee survey mm-hmm. uh, when you were talking about trends. Can you talk more about the origins of that project and, and uh, you know, how it started, why we're surveying for these bees, why we're focusing on them, and, uh, and, and the survey techniques that we're using, how the, how the study uh, is distributed across the state? Yep. I will I will do my best to answer all those things. So Sorry, I threw too much at you there. Yeah. We've so far received funding from the Environment Natural Resources Trust Fund, the um, LCCMR, to uh, survey the bees in Minnesota. And it started in earnest in 2014 with some uh, kind of preliminary survey methodology piloting before that. And started in the prairie region, so going kind of county by county to prairies and surveying bees. And the goal really was primarily to um, get a state list of species and um, start to understand a little bit about their distribution. So, um, you know, going county by county, primarily we're using uh, bull traps. So those are just little cups filled with soapy water that are set out for 24 hour periods, um, five to seven times throughout the season from April to October. And we also supplement those, uh, that sampling method with some hand netting here and there as well to get more coverage and to pick up some of the species that we're missing with the bull traps. Uh, the bull traps are painted uh, blue, uh, UV blue, UV yellow, and white that have been shown through research to um, attract different species, different groups of bees. And I uh, can't remember any of your other questions, Mike. Well, I have a question before Mike fills in the, all the other questions. They have like 20 questions at once. It was. So, it was different species, are they more attracted to the different types of UV paint that you're putting on there? Yep. So in different, certain color bulls will attract certain species and not all bee species are really attracted to bulls. So that's why we also do that hand netting that Jessica mentioned. Try to capture everything that's there. It's pretty difficult to capture all those little critters at one time you're there for a few hours, but trying. Yeah. And then, okay. I'm just thinking about how that works. And you sort of have to do it that way because some of the species are so small. In order to be able to identify them, you would really need them up close, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Yeah, to be able to identify these two species, you really have to have a microscope. So we have to try to capture all those, all the things that we find, which are some of them are pretty good hiders. It's difficult to find them sometimes around. They're either flying around way too fast, so you can barely see them, or they look like an ant or something that you just don't notice right away when you look at it at the flower. There's definitely skill involved in this because I remember I helped y'all out last year um, with some of the rusty patch surveying and I was just like okay clearly I do not have the certain set of skills that is needed to capture bees. I was terrible with the net and you guys were both just like you know, when you watch somebody who's a master at something do something, they just make it look so easy, and then you take the net from them, and it's like you're the clumsiest person on the planet. And I they've need, already got like 20 bees, and they're like, oh, it's easy. Here they all are. <laughs> I'm like, I'm still working on one. <laughs> so I definitely have a lot of admiration for the skills that you guys have in this. Okay, so some of the questions that Mike asked, why survey for bees? So Jessica kind of mentioned before about the the goal of this project is to create a state species list because before this project started, we didn't really know what bees were found here. And to be able to like figure out what habitats we are finding certain bees in or to come up with some kind of pollinator conservation, um, we need to be able to know what's here first. So the goal is to just kind of 
rough, like a rough kind of fast pass through. So at least we have a pretty good idea of what bees are found in kind of within the state where where within the state they are found. We're heading to the forest next, so yes. we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, so we have surveyed the like southern part of Minnesota, central, northwestern, and so like Jess said, the northeast, the forested region is the next step in the survey to complete the statewide survey. Gotcha. And then that'll give you kind of your first look. How mm -hmm. many species are we talking about now? What are we up to in the survey? Did you say this already? I don't think you did. No, I've, I've intentionally avoided that, uh, Mike, um, but since you bring it up, <laughs> um, so part of the, the first first step that I didn't really mention, but is an incredibly important step, is actually going to historical collections like we have here at the University of Minnesota, a wonderful world-renowned collection with over 4 million species now, or specimens, big plug for the... University of Minnesota Insight Collection. Um, so it's going to those collections where their um, folks have, have accessioned Minnesota collected bees and recording the diversity there. That's really the first step. And so we also did that through the Minnesota Biological Survey. And there, there were about 450 species on that list. Um, from our collection efforts, we have about 200 of those 450 species. We've added three species to the state list yep. or thereabouts. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but this, the, the 200 that we've collected through our Minnesota biological surveys um, are really an indication of a couple of things. And people automatically assume that it's, well, it's because all of those other 250 have declined. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. I would suggest that it's also just really hard to get everything. Um, so many species are probably rare in any way, you know, from, from the onset. And so detecting them through this kind of broad brush survey is going to be really hard to do. And as we've already mentioned, the, um, if we rely on those bull traps primarily, um, which is a really easy way to collect a lot of bees, they're also going to be missing a subset of the species. Um, so we know from some statistical work that with our our current methods that we're using, we might collect about 300. So we're still even missing about 150. So so we're getting there, and, and we're excited to go into the forest and um, see what's up there. There's not been a lot of work on bees done in the forest, and, and so we're interested to see what we can find. So this brings me to my next question, which you may not have the answer to yet, but we know that in the prairie landscape, it's not just prairie. There's lots of other things going on too, um, wetlands, you know, savannas, those types of things. Are you seeing differences across habitats or is it too soon to try to quantify that because you're just now moving to really the more predominantly forested parts of the state? Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty early to tell, um, and, and the study wasn't really set up, you know, wasn't designed to answer those kinds of questions. I think we'll be able to know a little bit after we finish the survey, you know, if there are groups that are specifically um, distributed in those parts of the state or not, but mostly we can get that from the biology too, which we're also excited to do in the Northeast where when we, another reason we really like hand netting is that we get that plant association. So when we, we net a, a bee off of a plant, we, we record the plant that it was on and that stays with the specimen. So then we can begin to understand a little bit more about their biology, which is often lacking and, and would be for bull traps too. So we're excited to get up there into the forest. We don't, uh, yeah, we're just raring to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to see what you're going to find out because obviously the prairie parts of the state are very sunny. Bees are, you know, cold blooded. <laughs> so I'm just curious to see. I know that you can't tease out the differences, but I'm curious to see if any patterns emerge like with much shadier, less sunny habitats. Like I'm just curious to see what happens. I can't wait. Nor I. Nicole, uh, uh, can, you, can you talk about how Minnesota bee diversity compares to elsewhere? So um, 
I mean, I feel like we have a, in Minnesota, we have a very unique state. We have a lot of habitat diversity in our habitats. So I feel that is another reason why we might have a large amount, uh, high number of bee species here. So there's not a lot of many, there aren't many states that have done, uh, have like a list of bee species. Uh, Michigan has one and it's, since it's a fairly similar state close to us, um, I would expect to have somewhere around the numbers that they have, which would be somewhere around the 450 bee species, um, roughly maybe 100 bee species per county. So um, I feel like in the Midwest, at least in the few the states around us, we would have uh, either a, around the 450 mark, just okay. similar to the other states. Gotcha. Okay, tell me a little bit about the different kinds of bees and the most common bees that you might be finding. And I know that this is going to differ depending on where you are, but are there any patterns that are emerging? Like, what are things that you would find more commonly than other things? Sure. The So, like we are kind of talking about how bees are such a diverse group, They there's some that nest in the ground, there's some that nest in cavities or like in the stems. And there's some bees, they're called cuckoo bees. They don't actually make a nest at all. And they just sneak their eggs into some other bee's nest, lays their eggs right where on that pollen ball that left for that other egg and then runs away and then finds another nest to lay some more eggs in. So there's all kinds of bees. And there's, like I mentioned before about the pollen collecting hairs, they're not always just on the legs, like you may think. Um, there's some on the uh, belly. And then some of them, like those cuckoo bees, well, they don't need to collect pollen because they're going into these other nests and laying their eggs there. So they don't have pollen collecting hairs either. So they don't make any nests and they have no pollen collecting hair. They just kind of go steal those pollen balls from the other nests and lay their eggs on it. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Now yeah, I'm imagining like parasites. Like they're like the cowbird of yeah. Well, they're like cuckoos, right? Cuckoos. Well, some, some yeah, cuckoo, cuckoo bees. Yeah. So, um, some commonly found bees, I would say, uh, bumblebees are fairly common. They are larger and they're better known. A lot of people know what a bumblebee is. They're cute little, like, they look like cute little teddy bears just flying around, bumbling around, flower to flower. Um, The other bees, I would say, are the most common would be sweat bees. So these, there's a large variety of sweat bees. Some of them are, like, medium-sized and they're green. Or there are some tiny, tiny little ones which you might be kind of common uh, or you might have known because they they're called sweat bees because they like to land on you and lick up your sweat. So sometimes as you're playing outside or like I've had when I was little, I would under my shorts, like I got a little bee sting. I didn't even know it was a bee because they're so tiny. They don't really look like a bee, but um, they like to land on you and lick up your sweat. And so if they, they don't typically sting you, but sometimes if you squish them, they're going to sting you. So they, it doesn't hurt to like a wasp sting or anything. Like sometimes you barely real, really know what it is. But um, I would say those are probably the two most common bees that we kind of see. What's the uh, the USGS bee expert that posts, that has the, all the photos? Sam Drogi. Sam Drogi. So I was looking at his photos and, and, and picked what I thought was one of the coolest looking bees and it turned out to be the, the common sweat bee. Hmm. And I thought that was really, I mean, it's just this really bright green, cool yeah. looking little bee. I have a lot yeah, of questions really cool. for you now. What do you mean you picked it for what? I, I picked, <laughs> for like your wall art? I, picked, I made it my, my screen background. Oh, okay. That's what I was yeah. like, what did you pick it for? A presentation? Oh. He does take pretty amazing pictures. I have to ask just this question because... This is a question that we get a lot in the office from landowners. And so um, I'm asking it to you. Do honeybees compete with native bees? Mm-hmm. 
So we yeah. hear this a lot, you know, because there, there's 2% of the prairie that's left. We have limited floral resources on the landscape. This is something people are concerned about. And I just want to know how concerned should they be? Yep. As usual, I'm going to toe the line <laughs> and say we don't know a lot. Um, we There are certainly some suggestions that honeybees could compete um, from the literature. And I've, I've tried to keep up on this subject because I also get this question a lot. And, um, you know, the jury's really still out. I think if they were obviously competing to a large degree, we could detect it with the science that's been done. I, my sense of reading the science is that um, we're not, it, it's not a huge problem. Um, now, that being said, you know, we can't go putting like giant amounts of honeybee hives out on our native prairies, right? That would not be good. Um, but the level at which people are keeping honeybees in the landscape in Minnesota doesn't strike me as, a, as problematic. And I think it's probably, I know I set you up for that, but it's it's good yeah. to get that context and to try to help understand what we know and what we don't know. I think I like how Marla Spivak answered it. I was listening to one of her talks and she basically said, let's stop t like putting bees against each other and mm -hmm. let's start just planting more flowers, <laughs> like getting more resources out there, which I think is a good take home message in the interim. While we don't know, there's certain thresholds of things that we wouldn't want to do because we certainly know they would be harmful, but still let's just do what's in our control. Plant more flowers, native mm -hmm. flowers. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, you know, diversity, native flowers, grasses, all the things. All the things. And don't clean up your yard. Mm -hmm. I, you'd be very proud of me, Jess. I just planted a bee lawn. So, of all native species. So, Ooh. my neighbors are going to love it. I cannot <laughs> wait. It's going to be great. I looked at all of the prairie plants that were less than two feet in height. And I just put my whole hillside out as wildflowers. I think it's going to be magical. And I even made a honeybee-focused one on the top part of my yard where it's all non-native clovers. I know. Can I even say that? Ecology. But I felt like I wanted to create space for everybody who's using my yard. <laughs> it's a yard, after all. Well done. Jess, is there any way you can tell us what you think the future holds for bees in Minnesota? Well, as any good politician, I'm going to uh, flip this question to uh, say something I've been thinking about, and that I think the way in which the way in which I like to think about um, assessing that question, what the future holds, is by thinking about the specialist bees. So, um, one of the things that we haven't touched terribly on is that some bees are go to a lot of different plants. Other bees, and these are the ones that are the coolest, they go to a very specific plant, um, maybe a genus or even a species. So the, the example I like to give are these Macropus bees that are oil-collecting bees on Lysimachia, as the common name, uh, loosestrife. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Native loosestrifes, we should. Native loosestrife, not the purple one. And... Um, and so it's those specialists that, that, from a conservation standpoint, we might think about being those that would wink out the quickest. If the resources aren't there, you know, the likelihood of them evolving to choose some other resource is low. Sure. Um, and so those are the ones that I would think we might be interested in looking at from a from a survey standpoint as well as a, a conservation standpoint and thinking about what the future holds for bees. So okay. that's where I would put my efforts. Um, and and those are those are the you know what's the cog the cog uh, quote Every from cog the Yeah, we got to save all the parts. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Intelligent tinkering. Here we go. Yep. That's throwback season one. Proud of you. Okay, lift us up here before we jump to our next section, Nicole. Um, tell us a little bit, like, what are some things that we can do to help? I would say the one huge thing you can do is just to plant a variety of native plants. And 
have a variety of bloom times. So something that blooms from, have something blooming from April through October because bees, some bees are, are emerged only early. So they're only out in April and May. But then there's some bees that are out still through October. So it's important to be able to have flowers for all of those bees coming out throughout the whole season. I would say to leave things natural, like undisturbed areas in your lawn and in your yard, um, some exposed soils. And if you want to clean up your gardens, make sure you still leave some stems cut up high, about 12 inches or so. Um, so the critters still can use all of that area for nesting. And then the biggest thing is to just get involved. You can just take some time out of your day, stare at a flower and see how many insects come to that. There's just so many insects that come to a flower. It's unbelievable unless you spend the time and really see what's there. And there's uh, some resources like iNaturalist or Bumblebee Watch that if you're really interested and have photos, you can always submit them to those um, websites and you could get some answers about maybe what you are finding. So it's just fun to get involved. I like that. I like that stare at a flower advice. I do too. It's a great way to, it's a great thing to do as a family too. I've never seen kids more calm than when they're observing a flower. Like there's something, it just sort of stills them. So this is a great way to have a calm moment, especially your little kids. Let's science to the Okay, I'm really excited because we made our participants do all the work today, <laughs> so they supplied all the papers that we're going to highlight for this section, and so that's really nice because we'll just let you guys take it away. Jess, you go first. Well, this paper that I chose somewhat um, goes with the theme of what what we've been talking about. So it's um, the title is Historical Changes in Northeastern USB Pollinators Related to Shared Ecological Traits. And so it highlights a couple of things that I've already talked about. It highlights the importance of museums um, because they, they're this window into the past. So they went into museums and looked at records of bees um, from the northeastern United States, over 30,000 records. And they were able to do that over 140 years because that's, you know, there were specimens in the collection um, that, that were that old. And so they found that through that time, really very few species were found to be declining. Um, uh, so of the 187 species that they analyzed, only three declined steeply. And um, most of those were bombus. And um, they also found that some species were increasing in abundance. Um, the main takeaway for me was that the community composition shifted. And so that's an indication to me that although a lot of times um, folks think about things in terms of a population standpoint, it's perhaps the community that we need to be considering. Um, so communities shifted over time, as you know, so some species became more abundant, some species became less abundant. Um, and the other thing that this paper highlights is what I was just alluding to is that one of the traits that they found to uh, kind of indicate um, declining abundance was a small dietary breadth. So that means species that are really only going to a small number of plants for pollen and nectar. So um, it's those specialists, those oligolectic bees, specialists on just a few um, species of plants that we really need to think about from a conservation standpoint. So I have a follow-up question. So when we think about specialists like monarchs, we're talking about generally their larval forms are specialists mm -hmm. on that plant. When you're talking about bees, are the adults specialists on the plant or is it them as an egg and a larvae no you so, remember how Nicole painted that wonderful picture of the bee going to the plant and gathering the pollen and packing it all in and then taking it back to the little egg and they on there <laughs> i don't remember her saying oh, it maybe that exact voice but <laughs> so see it's the, it's the larvae when we think about um hosts um, what what species are are host plants? It's 
for the larvae. It's all for the babies. Nice. Got it. Okay, Nicole, you want to talk about your pick? Yeah, so my pick is a book from Heather Holm. It's called Bees, an Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide. Um, I just love this book. My most favorite part of it are the pictures. So if you are a person that likes to see up close things, little things such as bees, um, this would be a great book to pick up and look at. Heather takes amazing photos, and it's packed full of all those photos. But besides the photos, she also does a great job at describing the several genre of bees, including the life history, some distinguishing characteristics for identification, and some common forage plants that you may find these bees on. So it's kind of it's, it does a really good job at giving an overview of some specific genre of bee um, while giving you the beautiful pictures of some of like the nesting sites and just up close pictures of bees too. So it's a great photo to give you an overview of some what bees do and what they need. Cool, I will check that out. I like how Jess stepped in into her old role there. And- <laughs> Somebody's got to pick up this black around thanks. here. I was probably supposed to say something, but thanks, Jess. <laughs> We're all just staring at you. <laughs> Jess is like, I'll pick up this ball. <laughs> Come on the clock today. Uh, oh, gosh. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike. I wish you would take a hike. <laughs> I wish I would, too. Let's all hike together. Oh, my goodness. So we also, again made our guests do the bulk of the work here so we'll go in the same order jess what's your pick where are we hiking to today well uh mike and nicole might find this slightly ironic because of my incessant complaining about this place over the past summer (laughs) surprised yeah statements like i'm never going back there in my life um but it really is amazing i'm trying to redeem myself is what i'm getting at here it, because it's beautiful, it's a really absolutely beautiful place. Mountain Prairie S N A in um, southeast area. Minnesota. What? Scientific and natural area. Oh yeah, scientific natural area. Um, it's a series of quite a few mounds um, that you can hike to um, if you are able, and it's just it. The the views are absolutely fabulous. From the views are amazing. Yeah, they're amazing, and the diversity is amazing. Um, we surveyed there this year uh, for bees and butterflies, and just it's just amazing. The diversity is amazing because there's those bits of forest, um, and it's just beautiful. The plants are beautiful. It's, it's absolutely stunning. So I highly recommend a trip to Mount Prairie. I have to, I have to ask, why did you not want to go back? during the field season? You're describing I mean, it now very beautifully, so I'm just curious. It's uh, not for the faint of heart from a hiking perspective. Uh, the the steepness of the of the mounds is, I mean, I suppose it's normal for those mounds, but it's, it's they're very steep, and surveying uh, butterflies on them was challenging because of that. I'm used to walking at a relatively slow pace, but I, I found it hard to not only keep my footing, but also to survey butterflies at the same time. The brambles, I mean, I could go on, but I don't want to make it, I don't, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. <laughs> I commend you for picking a prairie in the southeast, which I think we too often uh, neglect. You know, uh, and uh, that's, the non-game program did some management there, and, and I, I helped for a little while in my short tenure down there. And if, if, you, if, if folks want to see good examples of some successful prairie management, those bluffs are good examples, um, including where we browsed uh, or grazed some goats. Uh, goats were a valuable tool on that very steep landscape that Jess is referring to. It's hard for people to do management on those bluffs. The goats are great at it. And... Some of our more successful goat projects were on those bluffs. I like it. Nicole, where are we hiking? It's a pretty hard choice because we have some beautiful places here in Minnesota. But 
My choice is Casota Prairie uh, Scientific Natural Area. Um, it's a very small site, but it is a beautiful prairie, and it is located above the Minnesota River Valley, so it's just kind of a small little area tucked away, but it is just filled with beautiful flowers all the time, and I was I was spent one summer surveying for bees there, and I want to go back. It is very beautiful, and you find a lot of variety of plants and bees, of course. Then my other second choice, which was a really hard to choose from, um, was the Kellogg Weaver Dunes. It's a scientific natural area, and the Nature Conservancy also owns part of it. Um, it is also over in the southeast where Mike loves the prairies over there. Yeah. And it is, it's, it has just really unique landscape. Um, lots, it's very sandy and it has some just unique plants and bees there as well. I like it. I, I, like should, it. I should mention that, that, that add to Nicole's description of the Kellogg Weaver Dunes that there's a big uh, wildlife management area whose name mm -hmm. is now escaping me. What is the name of that wildlife management area? But anyway, it's part of that whole complex and it's, it, I think it's probably, I've never read this, but I think it's probably the largest contiguous prairie in the um, in southeastern Minnesota. And so that we, we found a lot of species there that we didn't find elsewhere in the southeast, like grasshopper sparrows and, you know, western meadowlarks and some of these birds. I'm sure pollinators as well that really require large contiguous prairies and, and just a really cool, would you call it a dry prairie or a sand prairie? Certainly, yeah. Sand Prairie, yeah. Yeah, and just really cool and, and interesting to walk through it before or after you walk through the more lush tall grass prairies uh, in the western part of the state. I think dry prairies are some of my favorite sites because it's where diversity can really thrive a little bit more because there's a lot more space, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. And because the soils tend to be a little bit more nutrient poor, there's obviously less water. That's why it's dry prairie. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, there's some of my most favorite areas. As always, you can check out these areas and any of your public lands by going to the DNR's Recreation Compass and planning your next hike. So next week, I think we've already done. Like, it doesn't even feel like I should say for next week, but we're here. We're going to catch you on Prairie Tuesday, where we're going to be continuing our bee theme. We're going to chat with Karen Jokolov with Xerces Society. And we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about how we can do better on the farm farming for bees. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm into bees now. I know. See, I'm, I'm, I could great. do a whole season on bees. We could do a whole season on bees. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of all the things we need to know mm -hmm. about. Oh, my gosh. Well, this episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. We are going to be back next week. And in the meantime, you can find all the resources we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. Jess, Nicole, I miss you guys already. I want to just keep extending it. I don't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was an honor to talk with you two, especially well, both of you. I'm, I'm not going to say especially one or the other, but but you know, Jess, since you were in this role last year, it's it's just uh, it was cool to talk with you, kind of in switched places here. I know, but Nicole is. Have you noticed that her whole outfit is sort of bee themed? So not only does she wear a bee shirt, but she's also got when we ask people to describe, like to draw a bee, it's one of the stripes, yellow stripes, and she's wearing yellow stripes. Mm -hmm. I just think it's appropriate. <laughs> Great job. Good job. All right, high fives all around. Thanks, guys. Oh. Thanks.